You're listening to Harvard Chan's This Week in Health. I'm David Levin. It is 50 years uh, since the first Earth Day, so what better time is it to talk about the planet and our health? That's Gina McCarthy, the former head of Harvard Chan's Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment, or Sea Change. She's also former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency under President Obama. Today, things do look a lot different than they did in 1970 when the first Earth Day took place. The communities where we live are safer and cleaner overall, but we are still facing a major challenge to public health, and that's climate change. Its effects aren't always obvious, but they're slowly altering our world. Changing climate brings problems like sea level rise, droughts, more intense storms, and most notably, a rise in global pandemics like the one we're facing right now. In this episode, we talk to Dr. McCarthy about how far the world has come since the first Earth Day and how we can better protect its environments in the future. As far as environmental issues are concerned, what's changed between then and now? And you know, how far have we come and what new challenges do we face? Well, there's, there's a lot that has changed, not least of which is how old I've gotten in those 50 years. <laughs> but perhaps more importantly for everybody uh, is to, to look back and, and at least for, for folks my age, we can remember what the world looked like here in the United States. We can remember that Orange County down in California looked like it was called orange because of its air quality, not just the citrus it was producing. And we can remember what Pittsburgh used to look like, and we can remember the litter on the side of the road. You know, we can remember not just the air, air problems, but the water quality problems we were facing. You know, we were a pretty you know, knew then to environmental challenges and they were in your face. You know, I used to work in, in, and live in, in the Boston area um, really almost all my life. And when I was a kid, we would swim in Boston Harbor, but you'd have to come out and pick the little oil spots off your skin. You know, the tar was sticking to you. It was just not the place where anybody wanted to be. Uh, but that's where we had to swim. And, and those things have changed. Now Boston Harbor is, is an amazing place. And the harbor is seen as the engine that really drives economic vitality, not just of Boston, but the region. And so we've learned, I think, how to clean up the air considerably, how to keep our water quality good. It doesn't mean we don't have continued challenges, because we do. It's a big lesson for us, I think, in climate change about the differences between then and now, which we can tout and say we did this before, we can do it again. But it's also recognizing the unique challenges of of climate change, which don't have the visceral sort of feel about them that all the pollution back in the 50s and 60s did. I'm really glad you said that because I'd love to know why you think it's so important to frame climate change as a public health issue now. And, you know, how how could that help change the way people perceive the problem? Yeah, I think that's been one of the challenges that we have faced is that, you know, we we bought into fossil fuel at the transition of the Industrial Revolution. And we know now a lot more than we did then about the health impact uh, that fossil fuels have imposed, particularly the burning of it, which has been the source of energy generation now for, uh, for centuries. And we need to really rethink that. But the challenge that we have with climate change is, you know, it, you can't see it and feel it and taste it. 
We have uh, basically spent decades trying to explain it to people from a science perspective. But if people can't see it, it's hard to buy into it, especially when you're talking about changing the entire way in which civilization has relied on to produce energy for us. I mean, uh, you know, that's going to be a hard sell no matter what. And also we've talked about it as, as if it's a, about the planet, not people. And the planet really doesn't care that we have forced it to change the way wind works and the way the oceans manage themselves. It, you know, it, people do. And so it's really a human issue, not a planetary issue. And lastly, we keep talking about it as, as t what's going to happen in 2030, 2050, 2100. So people can't see it, feel it, taste it. They feel like it's too big a problem to recognize because they don't know how to fix it. And people feel disempowered to fix it because nobody's talking to them about really what they can do in their lives now that, that are better for them. And, and we need to put a real human face on this issue. And I've been working in the pollution field, and I see climate as nothing more than carbon pollution, methane pollution. This is standard ways in which we can think about making change happen. And, and nobody actually addressed pollution challenges over the years unless it became a personal issue to them. And health drives action. People care about their health. They in particular care about their health for their children. And I think the science here at the School of Public Health needs to get out into the ether and discussed more because it makes that link for people. It makes climate change real, personal, relevant, because it talks about what it means for you and your family, not what it means about the planet or a faraway time. So can you describe what Sea Change and Harvard Chan are doing to combat the climate crisis? And not just in terms of studying it or in terms of uh, communicating about it, but, but in terms of real action? Well, it, you know, we are actually um, at, at the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment focused on uh, bringing new people to the table, advancing engagement, not just talking about what we know, but talking about what can be done, talking about what actions can be taken. Um, and I think in many ways, more importantly, we're, we're trying to work at, at the community level and the state and the city level and regional level to make people understand that the solutions to climate change are available to us. They need to ask for them, and in many cases, they need to demand them. And that if they did, the solutions would make the world a healthier and a more just place. So there is no way that we should be shying away from this challenge because we're worried about the future, what the future might bring. Exactly opposite. We need to embrace the challenge because we're worried about what the future may bring. And so part of this, this discussion we're going to have is to look at how you communicate climate change? How do you reach and motivate a broad movement of human beings at the community level that will demand more of decision makers and of themselves? What are the solutions? How do we drive these? And so we have to be more sophisticated in thinking that if, if science is, is published in a peer-reviewed journal, will anybody read it? Or will everybody read it? And we know that it's the former, not the latter. And, and we need to be able to then communicate what it means to us in a message that makes it personal to us so you won't be able to reach 
the audience you're talking to in a personal way. So it's storytelling. Well, why that's particularly interesting to me, especially as a science writer. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. I don't mean to no, denigrate no. your job in not any at way. all. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, the world was built on stories. Yes. But I'm wondering, you know, when it comes to developing your own narrative about climate change, what, where does storytelling come into this, and why is it so powerful for, uh, you know, moving the needle and, and getting uh, real change to occur? You know, I think in many ways the storytelling aspect is the way in which people actually learn today. You know, you're inundated with information. You have to catch people in a glimpse to pay attention to whatever you're saying. You know, it, it's you always in the end even remember broad systemic problems like the environment in the, in the 60s and 70s as a place-based issue as a human issue. You remember, you know, you don't remember the number of, of particulate matter that you have in Beijing today. You remember the fact that people walk around in masks there every day. And we saw the same thing happening when I went to San Francisco. When the Paradise Fire was burning, people were walking down the streets in San Francisco and in the hotels with heavy duty masks on their face. I never, ever thought in the United States of America, after 40 years of trying to clean the air, that that would be something I would ever see. Um, and, and so it, it, it's just all about relating to people. It's all about making it real. It's all about putting that image in, in front of their face that says, that could be me. That could be me. Um, and that makes people sit up and wonder what I can do about it. And if that face is a young person um, and we can make the case that it's about our kids' future, then I'm hoping that it will be more than one or two people that begin to take notice and act. But we need to turn from anger and angst to, to recognizing the challenge and being hopeful that we as individuals and as members of a community and a democracy and a, and a world order can, can move this ball forward. But when it comes to making something personal, and you, know, you mentioned a lot of the, the uh, early images from the environmental movement were place-based, but we're facing a much bigger global crisis now. So how do you start to translate some of that uh, into a global problem? Yeah. When it hits every place. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good question and it, the the reason why it, it it's most challenging is because none of us as individuals can fix the planet. <laughs> we can't reverse what what has already uh, happened as a result of of the accumulation of CO2 in our atmosphere. I can't go, we can't go backwards. We can't make the things that we're seeing today stop. We can adapt to those, which we have to do, which is a very powerful way to engage people. When you do maps like the Union of Concerned Scientists are doing and others and, and maps that, that the School of Public Health is generating, you can actually see what it means for your community and your home. You can see that change is happening and hopefully we can engage people in the positive response to that. City of Boston is doing a lot of work. We need it to be visible work. We need to understand that they're planting trees. Ooh, how bad is that? 
You know, they're building more playgrounds for our kids to play. And that's a sad thing, right? All the things that you want to do to address climate actually are pretty cool things to do. Let's get rid of the, the traffic challenge that we face. So the, these are all adaptive strategies to a changing world, which if you look at it, will make our world a better place and a safer place. But the, but the real thing I think it does is it, it, it again does what what we had available to us readily and in spades in the 50s and 60s, it just makes all this stuff real. It just makes it real in today. You know, I'm just tired of images of, of uh, polar bears. I, I love them dearly, but, but really it, it needs to be replaced by uh, our kids. And it's not about the future for them. It's about the today for them. And if we can make that case, then that's what stories allow you to do. It allows you to put your face your, on another person's human face and understand that even though we all cannot individually can't fix this problem, it's impossible to fix without all of our engagement. And that's the, that's the big challenge. It, there's no easy fixes. But, but without everybody rowing, we're not going to get anywhere in this race. So when you, you talk about community engagement um, pushing back against climate change, I mean, I think there's a, a lot of a sense of whatever we do is going to be a drop in the bucket. So how can community engagement on a local level help shift policy on a, a high enough level to really make a difference globally? Yeah, well, if you if you start at the challenges we are, are facing today uh, to our health, I'm not suggesting that anybody just look through a health lens and make decisions or just through, look through a climate lens and make decisions. I'm suggesting you look through both. So if what we have to do is tell people that, that, that climate change is real, it's happening, we need to take action. I think there's a lot of people that would act on that, recognizing that it's a group exercise here, not a single individual that's gonna change anything. But there's also a lot more people that would react to the health concerns that will understand that it's them personally and they have to act. There's this lovely synergy, however, between the two where, where you can get benefits that go well beyond any either of those two individually climate change will not get fixed by an individual community but it will never be fixed without individual communities it is an opportunity to act where you develop systems and approaches that then can multiply if we talk about it and communicate it to others and that's exactly how a democratic government actually works. It starts at the bottom up. We didn't fix the 50s and 60s problems without federal intervention based on what communities did and what they knew and how we had to do it. So everything starts at the bottom up. But on the health issues, you know, what everything we do for climate benefits health and vice versa, if we do this right. So there is every reason for those curmudgeons who don't like to talk about climate change to pay attention to the science that this university delivers, to tell you that you have a health problem and you can fix it, and you can do exactly the same thing to fix those that you would do for climate change. So I don't, I'm not a purist who demands that people pinky swear that they get that climate change is real 
if they want to participate just from a soul health perspective and say, you know, air quality is really bad. Electric cars can take care of this. Let's just move in that direction. Or if if we put biking and walking trails through a city, it makes my city more vibrant and it keeps people healthy. If red meat isn't good for me from, from a climate perspective and I don't believe in climate change, then maybe you ought to lower red meat because it's lousy for your health. There are so many ways in which you just have to meet people where they are and not debate something that they can't get their heads around. And so uh, that's why being at the School of Public Health, I'm like a kid in a candy store, because no matter what audience I talk to, I can relate to that audience, you know, and we can get to the same understanding of the actions that will make a better future. And I, I, I think the, the greatest frustration I have is the failure to do that is the failure to not recognize that there are always going to be people who don't believe in climate change, but there are vastly more that, that do. So let's deal with that. Let's figure that out. Let's look at our common, our common solutions and let's just focus on those. Meaning the common solutions that everyone can sort of get on board That's with. Right. That, you know, That's right. This is going right. to actually affect my health. Right. But, you know, there's, there's still a, a lot of um, folks that are denying climate change, but much less so. And so a lot of what we, that I'm seeing now is that dynamic isn't so much about uh, denying climate change, even for the fossil fuel companies, because the data is quite prevalent. Instead, it's about... You know, electric vehicles are just for rich people. You know, so why should anybody in an environmental justice community want to support that? Instead of saying electric vehicles now work, let's figure out how we can work together to make sure they're accessible to everybody and the benefits that that provides. And let's not put buses out that, that in, in Massachusetts that head to Concord and Lexington that are electric. Let's put those around Roxbury, Dudley Square, the area near where the Harvard School of Public Health is because that's where the bad air quality is. You know, so there is, there's no downside to thinking like that. And, and so th there are just many things that I think uh, we would like to argue from a, a principled perspective when, when it's really just taking the science and making the smartest decisions you, you can. For example, energy efficient light bulbs or water efficient toilets. Need I say or more? Dishwashers. Exactly. I mean, those are all things that save people money. If you look at renewable energy today, it's not winning because theoretically we have to worry about climate change. That's a good reason to do it, but the real reason is it's cheaper, you know, because we invested in it and it got cheaper and there's opportunities now to deliver less expensive energy that's also clean for you. Now, there are fanatics like me who pushed really hard to make sure that energy efficiency was treated as a resource in the energy sector and that renewable energy got the attention it needed because we knew that it would pose significant problems over time and it is proven to be very very correct but but we don't we don't want to negate the fact or make it a secondary consideration that that these issues are economically the best 
thing for people to do. Because for many years, we've had to struggle saying that the right thing to do may be a bit more expensive, but you got to suck it up. Where it comes to climate, that's absolutely not true. We have solutions that are brilliantly accessible, that with the kind of government and policy structure that we hope others will raise up to a, a broader level, we will be able to make the case economically from a health perspective or from a climate perspective. And we just, we just have to, to move because time is, is not on our side with any of these issues. So what reasons do we have to be optimistic yeah. in the face of climate change? It's, it's really easy to be kind of doom and gloom, but... Well, you know, there, there, are, you know uh, there are challenges with staying hopeful. Let me, let me put it that way. But what people need to focus on is looking below that at the organizing that's going on in the United States and in other countries, including Brazil, looking at how we preserve our land, including the Amazon, to be the carbon sink it needs to be, to be the vital source of biodiversity for the world that it needs to be. And there are folks in the United States at the community level that are working hard and succeeding. We have 25 states that have governors who have have promised to meet the climate uh, accord agreements, and, and they're moving forward to try to get to the numbers that science demands in 2030 and 2050. We, we have you know, mayors that are doing amazing work, not just on promising, but on delivering. And we now have young people, so that if you didn't feel climate change and the health consequences of that nipping at your con your conscience then you you better be prepared for your children <laughs> to to make sure that that your conscience is tweaked and tweaked good because they are just not going to stop so the way i see climate change actually emerging here is with some wonderful opportunities to have the same thing happen in climate that happened back 50 years ago during the first Earth Day and the movements there is that it was a bottoms-up approach, not relying on the federal government to be the first actor because it never is. And it now also has a whole two generations of young people who are simply not going to tolerate this anymore. And they are taking to the streets. People are marching. People are upset. And for me, that's hugely hopeful sign that this is no longer just the purview of scientists and policymakers. This information is now the purview of young people. And they know that it's their future. And they're going to tell us that it's not just what we need to do for science or for health. They're going to tell us it's our moral responsibility to act. And that is an argument that's going to be hard to deny. And, and I think you'll see that young people will continue to push us um, as they should. And I think you'll see that people my age and others are going to join in those marches and those movements because it, it's about time. Climate change is real. Climate change is the biggest public health challenge of our time. Climate change can be turned into the biggest public health opportunity of our time. And the Harvard School of Public Health 
is, is here not just to produce the best science that makes the link between climate change and health, but we're here to produce students who understand it, who come here because they want to know these issues and are going to help drive that movement moving forward. Our science is, has always, in my world, changed it. It's been what I've relied on to address air pollution and nutrition issues for decades. Now we're going to tackle the issue of climate change. We're going to produce and explain and communicate the science we know. We're going to train our students on how to engage in these issues and effectively go out and not just protest, but to figure out how to protest in a way that turns uh, the anxiety into hope and the science into action. Fantastic. Well, Dr. McCarthy, thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks very much. If you're a fan of This Week in Health, take our listener survey. We're gearing up for some big changes to the podcast, and we want to hear from you. To take the survey, visit us online at hsph.me slash podcast survey. That's all one word.